Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking and this week we're going to be thinking and chatting with the amazing Inga. Inga chats about her career as a veterinary nurse but particularly finding her niche as a referral oncology nurse and her love for sharing her passion for oncology and the patients that she treats. Inga also talks about the importance of communication with her pet carers, but actually also with the importance of communication within the veterinary teams that she has worked in. She also talks about the positive impact that you can have by really championing others and inspiring the colleagues around you with the clinical content that you share. So we're really excited to be joined by her this week and I really, really um, hope you enjoy our conversation. We're going to round up our chat about incidental liver enzyme increases this week with a a real focus on what to do with your liver biopsy. So I hope you can join us for that as well. Listen, pal, thanks so much for joining us again, again, again on the podcast. Um, We we recorded a little bit of time ago and um, we just felt like we should do it again because we just enjoyed it so much the first time. So here we are. Um, so just, I wonder if we can start by, if, if you don't mind just introducing yourself to the listeners and just giving us a little bit of background about you and what you do. Yeah, so uh, my name's Inga. I am a senior oncology nurse. Um, I guess I have been nursing a long, long time. So I'm one of the old school. I qualified 2007. I actually ended up working with horses before I came into small animal. Um, realized that I wanted to do veterinary, did 11 years in GP practice, and then about 2015, just decided I needed a change and was looking around to see what I wanted, to see what interested me, and had two cases come into my hospital with lymphoma that were clinically really well and were put to sleep pretty shortly after diagnosis just because they had cancer. So that kind of sparked my thoughts of, well, what else can we be doing for these patients? So looked into it, realized there was a bigger world out there and just happened to see that there was an oncology hospital being built in Surrey. Um, just decided to apply, because why not? And then got invited to an interview and that just spiraled because I was like, oh, hang on. This is actually a job I really want. So ended up coming over to the UK in 2015 took that job and worked my way up. So a bit of surgery, a bit of medical oncology, and I'm now full-time oncology. Well, so first thing I just, I'm going to have to pick you up on is the fact that you refer to yourself as old. Well, old school. (laughs) Old school. So we graduate, we, so we graduated in the same year, 2007. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, Scott. (laughs) Funnily enough, I was looking at some of my old um, old um, university documentation. I was kind of updating my CV and different things. And I came across, I sat the NAVALI, which is the North American licensing exam, when I was in my final year at vet school. And I came across this document and it literally looks like something out of an Agatha Christie novel. It's kind of like slightly stained parchment paper, like certificate of like completion. And I was like, I definitely am old and that was from 2007 so yeah I think we are I think we might be officially old what I I really like about that story though is that you 
you know, you were kind of inspired by cases, you know, as we often are, you know, something that's happened in our kind of veterinary life. And then apply, I love that. I applied for a job and then I was like, oh, surprise, I might, I might actually get the job. What did you did you kind of do that maybe thinking that it wouldn't quite happen? Yes. Like it wouldn't, it was one of those things that wouldn't work out. Yeah, it was a big jump for me because um I guess when I applied for it, I was told, I was told initially that, you know, veterinary nurses don't really get past their 30s in Ireland because they go into practice management or they become a rep. There's not really a future in terms of career progression. I think it's gotten better since, but you know, at that point, that's what I was expecting. And I was kind of not really sure. And I don't think I expected to want the job so much. Um, I guess referrals was always a big leap from general practice. And I thought to myself, well, I probably don't have a chance of this, but I'm going to apply anyway. It involved a house move. It involved bringing my dog with me. It involved bringing my then boyfriend with me. It was a massive jump. So that was the first thing I was like, oh, God, what? I'm going to have to actually practically look at all these things now rather than just theoretically go, well, I applied. It didn't work. You know, move on. Um, but, yeah, it kind of showed me, I guess, that I had that passion. It's like when you flip a coin and you go, you know, one side I'll do this, the other side I'll do this. And then it lands and you're like, actually, that's not the outcome I wanted. So, you know, in the back of your head that you, you want that so much. It, it's true, isn't it? When it's, it's not just a... It's, a, it's not just a job, but it's a location. It's a move that involves other humans. It's a, a move that involves other animals. And then it becomes like a massive thing. So I, I have massive respect for people that kind of make that leap of faith. But I think seeing what you do now, which is so kind of uh, focused on oncology and, 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 and your career is just kind of really skyrocketed, then it was hopefully a good move. Absolutely. I think once I found that niche that I wanted, mm. I just focused on it. And I I think it's, you know, it's a cliche maybe, but they say once you love your job, you never work a day in your life per se. And I definitely, I, I saw the path then once I got into it, I was like, right, next step, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do my dip AVN. I'm going to progress. I'm going to become a senior nurse in this team. From there it was, right, I want to do the postgrad cert. Now it's I want to do the VTS. I've got quite a clear, maybe not a five-year plan, but definitely a two-year plan ongoing where I kind of reassess, see where I want to go, see what I want to do. And it's definitely easier because I love my patients. I love my job. I love learning about what I'm doing. So it makes it much easier just to, to reach for all of that. And I think I've been lucky. I've had a lot of people around me who have definitely supported me in doing that. So I think I love it. I love um so you're going to do your VTS now? Is that the next thing? Yeah. So I'm just collecting cases from my VTS at the moment, oh, um, which is fun. <laughs> yeah. That is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah just, it's full on. It's, it's, just, they say 50 cases, but they say mm, you should really submit 75. I, I think any nurses that I've worked alongside that are doing their VTS, um, I have felt the you know the, their discomfort with it. And I think, you know, it really is one of those things that, you know, if it was like when I was doing my diploma, my mom, you know, my mum said to me, if it was easy, then everyone would do it. And I think it they don't make it easy. <laughs> so not everyone wants to do it. Like, I think it's one of those things like it's really they do put you through the the ringer. And I, I want to pick up there when you said I love my so I love my patients, you know, so and I I do. I must admit what I see from you 
on social media we'll talk about that in a minute but we'll you know what I see from you in social media whatever else I do think that comes through loud and clear and I think that I love that that's kind of at the core of what you are doing is that really you have an inherent love for the patients that you're treating yeah I I definitely I think my number one job as an oncology nurse as as any nurse really is to advocate for your patients isn't it um, and in that is getting to know them, getting to know their families, getting to know those little quirks. Um, a lot of my clients laugh because they're like, you are just the treat lady. The dogs come in and they sit in front of you. I put my hand in my pocket and they sit because they know there's something in that pocket for them. So just getting to know them and getting to know what they need and that all encompassing care for them. Um, that's kind of what makes my job my life happy um, and whether that's giving them a bath you know they've they need a bum bath that's fine that's what they need at the time it's not about the technical it's not about you know the massive cool surgery or the electro chemo or that kind of thing that's great but if my patient's happy at the end of that that's all that matters and um, I have some clients that were some of my first clients that I ever saw in referrals and those people will still keep in touch with me even those those patients have sadly died so it's kind of that connection that's what makes it worthwhile to me mm-hmm. and I think you're you 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 said something really interesting there where, where you're you know a lot of your job will be the you know administering chemotherapy and the processing of patients through chemotherapy and other treatments for cancer you know whether that be uh, you, you mentioned electrochemotherapy. I don't understand some of these things but anyway chemotherapy whatever <laughs> um so you you know you're you're kind of navigating these patients through these these treatment protocols what what would you say is you know as far as being an oncology nurse actually what's the most important part of the job that you do i guess whatever we do for our patients um i've, I've got a few things that are non-negotiable for, for me one that we advocate for them, obviously. So if I see that there's something that could be done that isn't being done or that someone's had an oversight, that I will step up and push for that. Um, And that's regardless of what we do, you know, people need to have all the options as well in terms of what the treatment options are. And that ranges from nothing to everything. And I guess at the end of that, the goal is quality of life. That's if I can provide quality of life, whether that's doing nothing, palliative care, giving chemo, having surgery, doing both chemo and surgery. As long as that dog has quality of life or that cat has quality of life throughout, then that's that's my goal. That's, you know, job done. So yeah, I guess if you if you could put it into one short kind of what is my job, it's to provide quality of life for a patient with cancer. What a great job right what and what what when you kind of say it like that and you think god what a privilege we have to to be in a position where that's what we're trying to do that's a i think that's a privileged position isn't it to be in yeah for that to be your job that's a cool job that sounds good yeah and we don't know you know we don't always achieve it that's the thing you 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 try your best and you we're human treatments don't always work out like you get you like you'd expect them but if we I think if we can give the majority of the time if we can do our best to provide that then we've done a good job regardless yeah so what do you think when pet carers come to have oncological treatments you know with you and the the place that you work 
what do you want their lasting memory to be of them taking their pets for treatment for cancer? What do you want them to come away with as their memory of that? Um, I guess I want them to feel like they've been on the same team as us. So we're all on the same team looking after their pet. So I don't think you can say that we're part of the family because we're not. We're obviously medical professionals looking after their pet, but that we're listening to them, that we're taking on board their concerns because I know having had a dog with cancer myself, it's not always logical. You worry about stupid things that actually might not be clinically significant, but they're actually quite important to you. And so to have someone who's going to listen to that and communicate and be honest and you kind of have that bond of trust with them. So I think walking away from the hospital thinking I've been listened to, I've been given the information I need. These people are working with me, not dictating, working with my concerns for my pet and making that kind of individualized plan for them um, to have that, that feeling of an all round comfort, I guess, having that, that feeling, not that it's doctor and nurse versus pet carer, you know? Mm -hmm. but I think just no I think you you said it perfectly I think being listened to and I this is not just about oncology like I, I think this is a you know really important stuff just for all of us where I think we need to remember that we're on the same team I think a lot of where we end up now is them and us yeah and I think that's that's where the conflict comes in isn't it where you have someone who doesn't maybe understand what you've said they don't understand the treatment plan. They're frustrated. They're grieving because you haven't had that communication. And it really boils down to that communication, like appropriate communication with someone and working with them. And yeah, there's lots of, there's lots of concerns, isn't there? It's not just, you know, what's the best plan for dog A? It's, you know, can we afford this? Can we fit this into our lifestyle? Can we you know, is this right from for this patient rather than a kind of set plan? And I think, yeah, it's it's easy. I guess we have we have a bit of luxury in oncology in that we've got long appointments. We can have that time and sit with them and call them and have that relationship. And primary care, it's much harder. Yeah, and it is. And I, I find myself like, you know, a lot of my job now is giving advice to primary care vets about, you know, medical things. And I do find myself always, you know, saying to people, look, I'm, I'm going to tell you this thing, which is easier said than done. And it's, it's you know, what the gold, I, we shouldn't say gold, standard, whatever the, you know, insert appropriate phrase, but, but in an ideal world, these are the things we do, but we, you know, in an ideal world, which we do not live in, you know, and, 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 and this is like, you know, you know, treating X condition with X medication, but it doesn't take into account owner finance dog environment circumstance whatever all these other factors that I think I think in many ways actually as an oncology nurse that's kind of the essence of your job in some way to actually be aware of maybe some other factors that the vet would not be aware of for whatever reason you know understanding things maybe on a deeper level in some ways that the vet wouldn't necessarily understand yeah I think we get more time maybe with the with the carer to have those conversations as well so um and then so, sometimes i'll i'll send carers you know if, they, if i know they're a bit worried or you can pick up on the signs that they're a bit worried about maybe the first chemotherapy treatment 
I'll send them a little photo of their dog and go, you know, this was fluffy in the chemo room, you know, having a treat and just open that conversation a little bit. And sometimes I, like I have the luxury to do that. I have the time to do that. The clinicians don't. And then sometimes that just opens, you know, someone comes back to you and says, thank you so much. I was really worried. By the way, can you talk me through the side effects? Because they're so traumatized by the cancer diagnosis that actually half of the conversation maybe that they had in the consult room has just dissipated because they just heard cancer. So yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's, that's well documented in human medicine as well. Like people, people hear one thing and then they don't hear any of the rest of the stuff that you say, you know, you say to them, what would you say is the most, what would you say is the most rewarding part of your job? The most rewarding part is definitely the bonds with the, with the pet carers and with the dogs. And I would say both, mm. not just, or and the cats, sorry. I'm being... <laughs> Don't forget the cats. <laughs> it's mainly dogs we see. I see lots of great cats. Um, I have one cat who is obsessed with dreamies. And every time I see her, it just cracks me up. The carers are like, have you given her lots of dreamies again? I'm like, maybe. <laughs> um, so yeah, having that bond with them definitely means a lot to me to, to know that I've done my best for them to help them. It's a little bit selfish. <laughs> just having that sense of satisfaction of a job well done and someone looked after as to the best of my ability, I guess. Um, and that, that those relationships make all the difference to that. I couldn't do my job as well if I didn't have that bond with someone. Why did you make the decision to take your professional life and sort of um, start to think about sharing some of your experiences and knowledge online what was the what why did you make that decision uh so I guess it was a mix of things I just the most common thing people say to me all the time oncology is so depressing Mm -hmm. and that was nearly what it started as I was like I need to show what we're doing and how interesting it is and the outcomes can be good and we can make a difference and we can we can provide this quality of life and there weren't many people doing it. Like I know some really good oncology nurses. So people like Linda Ryan, who's amazing. Mm. Um, so I tra- I I was a student when she was at Edinburgh. Yeah, she's fab. Yeah, yeah. She's my mentor for my VTS. So oh, wow. Great. Right. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, so I've seen her lecture and I've seen, obviously she she will come across in lectures, but she wasn't really on social media at that point. Um, I wasn't really seeing. So even when I was looking for information to learn more about oncology, I wasn't finding that easily. So I just thought, you know what, if I can do this in maybe short, short snippets of information and yes, actually chemo isn't that bad. And, you know, here's the drugs we use and here's the interesting things we can do and just kind of share that a little bit and not have that doom and gloom situation. And you have to obviously address a bit of the end of life and a bit of the hospice care and that kind of thing as well. But just to make it a bit more informative and a bit more educational and kind of post things that interested me that I thought was kind of cool that maybe might interest someone else and um, it's purely selfish I just want everyone to love oncology the way I do so I think you I think you do a good job are you pleased you've done that are you pleased you've created that social media presence yeah I enjoy doing it I have to be careful because it's really easy to put pressure on yourself isn't it and go I need to do this I need to post and some days I'm just like do you know what I'm busy I can't I'm not going to post something today or I'll post something shorter and so I don't it's not my job it's something I do because I enjoy it and if I stop enjoying it then what's the point point? Um. so yeah I'm pleased I, I've done it I wish I could post more patients 
and that's always the issue and obviously confidentiality because my patients are my hospital's patients they're not necessarily mine so there are carers are very good but I also don't want to you know pop a patient up on a post and then if they do pass away that's quite difficult for the carer so yeah it's hard it's hard it's isn't it? I think you have to um yeah you have to be really careful with these with these yeah things. and it's I'm really aware of that kind of side of things so I tend to use a lot of stock images I'll post fictionalized so you know a picture of a random Jack Russell but actually the case is a real one that kind of thing so um and then yeah it's gotten me quite a lot of um lecturing work you know talking to, to other nurses talking to vets about things so that's quite interesting for me as well that's another kind of string to the bow so yeah no there's definitely good opportunities that come off the back of it apart from um you know your, the, the day job and and you know the, the social media stuff you also are involved with street vet it's, you're the first person on the podcast that we've spoken to about street vet particularly um I think we may have had other guests that have been involved in street vet but yeah. um can you just tell us a little bit about that and, and why you became involved in that uh, organization yes I love street vet so um street vet so basically what we do is we provide healthcare, so anything you could do in a veterinary clinic um to people who are maybe in sheltered accommodation or homeless or couch surfing and basically don't have any other means to get care for their pets so that ranges from medical care to you know poo bags and helping them with coats in the winter and you know food and that kind of thing but it's not just I guess um medical a lot of it's building connection with members of the public who are very marginalized who are very isolated and connecting with them through their pets which are generally the most important things in their lives so so it's really meaningful in terms of the interactions we have so you you might turn up and see someone and you don't treat that pet at all they get some treats they get some you know um some toys or something like that but actually that might be the first conversation that person's had with someone properly as a person rather than as a homeless person so i think it's it's really great in terms of providing those two levels of things that connection that care for the patient um but also that human yeah that human bond with people so I got into it um I think it must have been 2017 I think and I had seen that Jade actually had put something on social media somewhere saying she was thinking of starting outreaches in London and was inviting people along to kind of see what was going on and I actually didn't make it to that outreach but a nurse I worked with did so she came back and kind of I quizzed her on it, what's going on, what's happening, and ended up signing up to it. So ended up doing Camden for a couple of years and um, used to go after work with my then boss, Nick Bacon. So we'd go in on a Wednesday oh, afternoon. Oh, you were with Nick. All right. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. So it was very handy because he'd give me a lift into Camden. Oh, so I would right. have to get the train in. Um, mm -hmm. So we did street vet for a while. Both of us useless because we're obviously oncology and they're going, what flea treatment do we do? And we're like, oh frantically googling you know what does next guard spectra do or what does this do um but yeah just really enjoyed it really enjoyed it and i've met some like some of the people i've met i think because we've all got this shared ethical framework this shared value mm. i don't think i've ever met anyone who works for a street vet that i can't connect to immediately oh i love that so, yeah such good people such good people one of the people actually i don't i don't know if you know her um tracy uh whitehouse who yes 
Do you know yeah. Tracy? Do you? Tracy is Windsor with me sometimes. Oh yes. My God. Brilliant. She's such an advocate for nurses. She is. Oh. The last time I saw her, she was telling me how amazing I was, and I was like, I love her. Oh my God. So Tracy, so Tracy and I graduated at the same time from the same vet school so we used to study we used to we studied for our finals together so I used to go around to her flat um postgraduate student so she'd done another degree so she was like sense no she's not sensible actually that's not true but she she's had like a, she, had like she's se- <laughs> she had sensible life stuff so she had like like a proper house you know so had like a coffee table <laughs> not yeah like perfect. she had she, she had real stuff so she and I used to study together she is one of my favorite people and even to this day like I, I just I do I feel a massive connection with her but actually when she popped up on the street vet stuff with her pink hair like I was yeah. like of course you're of course you're. like she's just I can just imagine her heart and soul doing yeah. that and being brilliant what a wonderful human she has human. the biggest heart she mm. is she is absolutely amazing she's oh such- I love oh god I love her and that brings back so many me- anyway we're not talking about me and but that brings back lots of lovely memories for me as well but I can I I she when you talked about shared values I was just like that she immediately came into my head because that kind of she's a standard street vet person with those values and yeah you know that big heart wanting to make a difference and actually putting your money where your mouth is. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, having this aim to make a difference, but actually it doesn't really happen. So, yeah, it's really, yeah, not just that kind of lip service. No, I love that. I love that. Um, so certainly through your, not just your work with, on- with oncology, which, I, you know, continues to be, for me, very inspiring. I think, um, and you, you're only just kind of, you're still on this journey of doing great things. So you will definitely be an inspiration to many people, particularly nurses, I think, who are on a, you know, who who want to kind of focus on doing a particular thing, finding their niche. I would be interested to know who inspires you. I guess initially, so who would have inspired me initially to go into veterinary actually was um I did my work experience when I was 16 with a vet called Claire Mead, who works in she now works in Cork in Ireland, and she opened a cat hospital. Um, but when I was doing the work experience with her, just that, I guess the passion that I have for oncology was in her for what she was doing. So seeing someone with that passion and everyone, everyone since that I've kind of gone, you inspire me has had that, that drive and that passion. So like I said, Linda Ryan would be a big one in terms of oncology. Um, Linda said to me, one of the first times I met her, she said, um, first of all, she absolutely encouraged me she didn't know me from Adam and she she was like no go do it do the VTS do your qualifications if you need help I'm going to be here I can mentor you I can help you so that lifting someone up is invaluable and I think we're, we're really quick to a lot of nurses are very quick to kind of push down the the up-and-coming people they're like oh you know they're too ambitious they, they want too much you know I'm not going to share my knowledge so having those people who share that knowledge um the for want of a better word, the Betstagram people. So people like the Vet Empowered, so Claire and, and Katie, um, again, who will just champion you, Lacey, Laura. Just having those people on your team, that that inspires me. Having people who say, you know, I can go to and say, I'm, I'm having a wobble about this, or I'm a bit worried about this, or I have to give this lecture, is this okay? And they go, yes, you're rocking it. You're doing a great job. You know, they'll give you constructive criticism, and feedback maybe more than criticism but they're on your team 
and you know if they're in the audience they are rooting for you even if you know maybe you're not as polished as you could be but don't isn't it funny like I feel part of a team that I've we you know a lot of these people we've met now but actually we hadn't well I hadn't met until maybe last year last year but it still was very much like a that team the, the Lacey, Laura, Katie, Claire, Jack, you know, just that that list of people that just just are supportive, you know. And I feel the same, you know, I feel that same. And obviously you're within that team. Sorry, I didn't want to <laughs> Thank you. But you are you're you're a champion for, for what we do. And I think <laughs> having clinicians who are, you know, you're a specialist, it's for a lot of nurses, that's a big, scary thing. Having a specialist who actually says, no, nurses are amazing. They can do these amazing things. Just making, bringing out the best in you rather than kind of going, well, you're just a nurse. You're only a nurse. You can't do this. You'll never know as much as I do. At the end of the day, it just comes down to the fact that you, uh, for me, I forget that because I think, I mean, we're just all human beings. Like it doesn't, it does, it always comes down to that. Like it's slightly, you know, I always find these sort of, Hier- the hier- the hierarchical stuff the title stuff it's all a bit embarrassing really for me like I think like who, who really cares and I know people do care but I genuinely don't really anyway so that's that's my philosophy on everything I mean the title gives you the title gives you the the knowledge yes but it doesn't necessarily give you the humanity and the no. the desire to teach no. and that that connection does it that's in the process. No, all all that all the qualification and no disrespect to anyone's qualification or your qualification or whatever. But really, I mean, I feel my specialist qualification gives me it tells you that I've read a lot of things multiple times and remembered them. I mean, that really does that's basically it. <laughs> so, and sometimes not really remember them. <laughs> sometimes just remember the important parts. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and seen a lot of cases and and dealt with tricky things you know so yeah so that's part of it too but fundamentally just learned a lot of things about some things and then that's it (laughs) so anyway just wing it the rest of the time (laughs) definitely let's not devalue specialist qualifications but that basically is it in a nutshell you heard it here first anyway um so yeah so uh, you you've obviously um touched a little bit on kind of what you know might be next for you with the BTS but I think you know I was going to ask you kind of what's next for you in a nutshell but actually let's ask you something different so instead of saying what's next I I suppose the question is what do you want to be when you grow up ah this is the big question when am I going to grow up that's that's a massive question um I so I did surgery pretty much surgical oncology and soft tissue for for five years and I do mainly medical now. So I think my aim would always be to do something that encompasses both of those fields. Um, it's a job that doesn't exist at the moment. I'm going to make it exist one way or another. It's going to happen. So um, because I love surgery, I love seeing surgery, not anesthesia part of things, but I actually find it really fascinating. I love the aftercare of surgery patients. So um, I'd love to do a bit of both of those. And then, yeah, I don't know, it's the BTS is kind of, obviously that's not a given. That's a hard qualification to get. So if I get that, I will be delighted. I think I'll probably always be learning, but not necessarily pursue qualifications. Like something like a master's has no no hold over me. Um, 
and just yeah to be able to continue to to teach people I think and spread the knowledge and still have that passion I think as long as I've got that interest and that passion and what I'm doing I'll keep going no that sounds good so if you if you had one piece of advice you know kind of based on your career for people that are listening what would that piece of advice be I'm going to cheat on this one now so Mm. in terms of oncology advice Mm -hmm. My advice would be to F and A any lump that you're seeing on patients <laughs> because it is my bugbear. The amount of dogs I see and cats that I, you know, oh, that lump's been there for a couple of years, but it's probably fine. Mm. And then you test it and it's a mast cell tumor that's then metastasized to a lymph node. And this is the, the big lump we're seeing that they've come in for is metastasis. So that drives me insane. I'm like, just stick a needle in it. Just F and A it. It's quick and it's easy. You know, at least you then know what you're dealing with. So that's my oncology advice, mm-hmm. my bugbear. Um, in terms of general life nursing vet advice, it would be to lift the people around you. So encourage people, find their interests, you know, teach them rather than pushing people down. And I think I think we're getting better at it, but definitely when I started training. There was a bit of kind of tall poppy. Oh, you you want to do this? Well, you know, why would you want to do that? You know, just stick in your lane. Stick with what you can do. Don't don't bother aspiring towards anything. And I think there is still, I see people kind of very impatient with other people who are just literally just trying to learn. And that's not necessarily just vets and nurses. I've got some PCAs who will come in, patient care assistants, who will help us with patients. And they'll go, and thankfully they're happy enough to, to be confident to ask us but they'll go well, why are we doing this what what is this we're giving you know so they're restraining my patient but i can tell them what cancer treatment we're giving and what cancer this dog has and why we're treating and what the issues might be so yeah i think being able to, to move those around you is important i love the you know a rising tide lifts all boats there's no need to i think that that we're, we can all be on an upward trajectory together without any dampening down of spirit (laughs) yeah and it's not a competition you know because somebody else is doing the same thing as you doesn't mean that they're doing it better you're just both doing the same thing it's fine there's no need for it like I say to people like Laura I'm like oh my god like imposter syndrome I'm listening to you teach one of your nurses something and I'm sitting there going I don't have a clue what what you're talking about but then she says the same to me she you know, she'll go well I don't know what what's going on with oncology we're, we've all got our areas of of interest don't we so so just for the listeners Laura we're talking about Laura vet internal medicine nursing who has her BTS in uh internal medicine the the internal medicine BTS qualification so just to to give you an example of of Laura we were doing a um so I do a lot of live webinars right and um Laura did one for us uh last year and i'm sitting up here in my office watching her do this live webinar and my husband andy who's also one of the who's a vet nurse but is one of the vtx directors he's downstairs in his office doing the same thing and he's messaging me saying oh my god she's so much better than you (laughs) wow (laughs) i mean i've got those messages that i've got evidence of that oh my god she is so much better than you and i message back going i know (laughs) Oh, she's and and I'm extremely comfortable with that so I think like just she's so great like I I think be more Laura yeah yeah 
I mean, that's like, <laughs> like, like yeah, but you know what? She'll have strengths and you'll have strengths. I'm sure this is what you do that she So, yeah, I think same with her and you, or me and you, and all of us. Like, I think we, you know, we just have to be very uplifting and supportive of what everyone can do and 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 just be comfortable with that and 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 I think that's the best way for us all to move forward and do the best job that we can you know so at at the end of the day it's not about our personal gains it's about what we can do for each other the community our patients it's a wider wider goal true very very true and on that very wise note we will leave it there thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and um yeah honestly what a great conversation thank you for sharing with us today oh thank you for having me it's been a joy okay so let's start or finish our chat about incidental liver enzyme increases this week so just to to reset the story we're talking about jack a nine-year-old male neuter labrador who came in just with the management of really very moderate dental disease and we detected uh, increases in alt and alkp on pre-anesthetic bloods the dog you know very asymptomatic for those changes we've chatted through you know what we've done so far to kind of understand why there would be liver enzyme increases. These were liver enzyme increases that I think, you know, of a of a magnitude that you couldn't just ignore. Um, and, and remember that liver enzyme increases, they don't necessarily stop you from doing the anaesthetic procedure you want to do, but this was an elective procedure and and we decided that it would be appropriate to kind of look into why those values were increased. So what we've done so far is we've documented that they're increased on more than one occasion. I always think that's a good a good starting point. Um, we've gone through the history, make sure that he's not been exposed to any drugs or toxins. The owners haven't been giving anything weird or wonderful. We have given him um, some supportive care. So we've given him some um, uh, Sammy and some Destillate and, and that really didn't have any uh, impact on the, the, the liver enzymes. Um, we have made sure that liver function is okay. So we've we've checked things like bilirubin, bilases. We did a bilases stim, you know, urea, uh, coagulation proteins. Um, so we, we've we've happy that there's not liver dysfunction. Although clearly through these liver enzyme increases, the liver's not happy. We've done ultrasound uh, to look for concurrent disease and also look at the liver. The liver was relatively normal on uh, ultrasound. And we've also taken some liver um, FNAs, which were unremarkable. So we've really kind of exhausted, I think, as much as we can do from a liver point of view. Um, And we're left with a situation where there are persistent liver enzyme increases. The dog is asymptomatic. The question is, you know, how much do we... um, you know, do and and again, this is a, a a difficult thing as far as you know what we're kind of encouraging the owners to do. And so, like I said, after investigations, you know, the owners weren't really keen to do um, you know a huge amount more, um, and therefore, um, you know, they decided that they would do you know we'd we'd ruled out a lot of a lot of sort of significant things and they um decided that they would uh do some some liver support treatment so we did actually we ended up doing about 6 uh, to 8 weeks of um a sami containing product denimarin and destillate or arsidioxycholic acid and that 
caused a little bit of an improvement with the liver enzymes, but not very much. The question the owner then came back with was, look, if you take this liver biopsy, what are what you know what what are you going to do differently? And I think the answer is potentially a couple of things. So this was a Labrador. We know that Labradors are prone to copper associated hepatopathy. And so there is a chance that we would potentially give specific copper collating agents to this dog. And you would never do that without biopsy results. You know, that would you would just never do that. So that was something that we 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 might do. Um and also, you know, I'm relatively reluctant to give steroids for chronic hepatitis to a dog that we've not biopsied. So I do think the liver biopsy gives us a lot a lot of information. And for that reason, the owners elected to go for liver biopsy. Now, you can do that in one of really two ways. You can do that with with surgical biopsies or laparoscopically. And and we were very lucky to be able to do laparoscopic biopsies in in Jack. And I do think the if you've got the option to do that, they recover really nicely and can often go home um, the same day or the, or the day after. The major complication with liver biopsies is going to be bleeding. We always check uh, platelets and coagulation parameters, PT and APTT, before doing liver biopsies. Having normal platelets and normal uh, PT and APTT doesn't mean you definitely won't bleed from your liver biopsy. So I think the owners need to be warned of that. Um, But it's good to to have checked uh, those those prior to, to liver biopsy. There's not a strong correlation between whether a liver will bleed and what the coagulation parameters are doing, actually. So I think you've always got to be prepared that bleeding is is a potential uh, a potential complication. When you're taking biopsies, I think it's really important to take more than one biopsy for more than one lobe. We know there can be differences in in the distribution of disease within the liver, so really important not just you know not to take just one biopsy. And also when you get the biopsies, you need to make sure that you're not just putting them all in formalin. That's a really, really important thing. So some of the tissue goes into formalin for histopathology. Some of the tissue is kept fresh out of formalin, wrapped in a sterile saline swab for culture. And then the rest is kept in a plain pot for copper quantification. And you want to be sending your liver biopsies off for histopathology, culture and copper quantification. And so we did that with Jack. He recovered well. We continued his supportive care with um, Denimarin and, and Destillate and some analgesia post um, uh, biopsy. And his liver biopsies came back with um, consistent with chronic hepatitis. The culture was negative, but he had significant accumulation of copper within the liver. And that that can be calculated as an actual quantity of copper within the, the liver sample. And, and pathologists can also do a kind of a scoring system uh, for copper uh, distribution based on the staining of, of histopathology sections. And it was determined that he had a, a significant accumulation of copper in his liver. Copper is tricky because copper can be a primary problem, as it is in some breeds, particularly, you know, Bedlingtons and, and Labradors and other breeds. But copper can also accumulate because of liver disease. And so that's why it's really important to work with your pathologist and 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 talk to your pathologist about whether they think the copper is just secondary to the, the dog having liver disease or actually there's a significant, potentially primary accumulation. And we felt that was the case with Jack. So actually, we ended up um, giving Jack six months of um, D-penicillamine, so a copper chelation therapy. Um, 
And in an ideal world, um, we would re-biopsy the liver and um, see whether that had changed, you know, and, and I think that's a harder sell for owners. You've you've just about convinced them to do the first biopsy. Are you going to get them to do a second? And I understand why that's, you know, I can understand why that's challenging. We, there was some uh, persistence in liver enzyme increases and so actually, but just quite mild, we did also give steroid therapy for a, the chronic hepatitis component of it but again you know it's always a bit chicken and egg with with all of this um we continued his liver support with denimarin and destillate uh, and we actually longer term maintained him on a liver diet to um reduce copper uh, intake and also uh, we kept him uh, on zinc therapy longer term Zinc can help with copper absorption within the body. It's not really good for initial copper chelation, but it can be helpful as a kind of long-term therapy. We wouldn't use that concurrently with the D-penicillamine, but, but longer term after that D-penicillamine had finished, we use the, the, the zinc um, along with a liver diet. So there was a really relatively positive outcome with this um, with this dog actually um, and, and so I would encourage you in, in, the, in appropriate cases that liver biopsies can have a positive impact on your patients. Thanks so much for listening to our clinical segment today and that rounds off our discussion about incidental pesky liver enzymic increases. Just to say a massive thank you again to Inga for, for chatting today, but to all of you who are listening, I really can't tell you how much I appreciate the support that you give to the podcast. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, so that's all from us today. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the episode and I really look forward to seeing you next time.